You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today, Brett Arsenault, who is Microsoft's Chief Information Security Officer, joins me as we shake things up a bit to kick off National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Brett is responsible for information security for Microsoft and for our customers. He is also responsible for business continuity and disaster recovery at the enterprise level. And over the past several months, Brett has directed Microsoft's crisis management in the wake of COVID-19, which increased our employees' remote workforce from about 18% of our employees to nearly 97% of our employees. Brett also serves as the chairman of Microsoft's Information Risk Management Council, convening teams that deal with data protection from across the company, and he hosts Microsoft Security Council, a customer forum that drives product direction and operational best practices. Brett, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Ann. So, Brett, if, you know, before February or early March, we would have been um, together in Redmond, probably in the studio recording this, but now we're talking to each other via our laptops and from our own homes um, on different sides of the pond, probably. (laughs) So um, you have been, you know, on the forefront of this guidance and implementation of how we've maintained productivity, how we've taken one of the largest tech companies on the planet um, and moved our employees and customers to this remote work model, that balance of, you know, security plus productivity plus compliance at a global level. And it, it is absolutely staggering to think we've been going through this massive and rapid and ongoing shift as, you know, how we work for more than six months now. And it's yielded, I know, some really interesting data and some insights about balancing security and productivity whilst maintaining compliance. But before we talk about all of that, I want to talk a little about your background what exactly crisis management entails and means to you, how this all relates to Microsoft's own cybersecurity responses to any crisis, including the pandemic. And I also want to talk about whether you've had any time on the racetrack recently. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ed. Uh, I, I haven't had much time at all for uh, for, for spending time uh, behind the wheel, which is probably good. Uh, don't think I was, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I was good enough for that anyway, but it is a lot of fun, which is super important. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting uh, being the CISO at Microsoft when I when I took this role, one of the few things organizationally I wanted aligned in the org was the uh, disaster recovery crisis response program. And the biggest reason why is if you look at, you know, handling uh, crises and the situations there, particularly if you go on a principle based view, um, just the probability that a lot of those would be cyber based incidents was pretty high. So we thought there's a real strong correlation between the two. And so, um, so my role in the CISO here is not just a technical role around the architecture, but it's really, you know, when we think of the modern CISO as you've, you know, been so ingrained in this community, it's really about including operational excellence, business enablement, and risk management. And that's really where the crisis response part came in was that that piece. And about a third of the CISOs that I work with in the, at least in the Fortune 500 have that same that same remit around the crisis response because of you know the way we look at it there's 
the planful acts uh, that we can that we can plan for, like weather related, unplanful, like earthquake, um, illegal, which is where cyber tends to fall. And then pandemic is the fourth. Those are the four big things we plan for all the time. So uh, that was that was in the remit of my role here. And um, we've been running exercises at the SLT below the SLT, including testing of systems and everything else. And um, it really is something that we have to run at both a local level, at a city, at a regional level, which is the country base. And then of course, hierarchically at the senior leadership level, all the way to our CEO and board triggers. And so um, it's a pretty fascinating part of the program, actually. I think, you know, as part of that program, as I mentioned, pandemic was always part of the plan. In fact, the first exercises we ran were uh, avian flu exercises. And um, and so you again, you do principle based that you can apply to almost any uh, any emergency incident that you might have in that situation. Um, so that's kind of how it worked uh, as we were working through the program. I will say that of all the pandemic planning we had done and natural disaster, we probably respond to about 30 of these every year. Um, I don't think we had ever anticipated one quite like COVID. Um, and that's the beauty of uh, any great plan is when it you know confronts the front line. It never quite is the way you saw it was, but generally the principles did apply and worked well for us in this situation. So I'm pretty happy we had been doing um, most of this planning around how to make decisions. What are the principles you guide guide you through your decision process because it made it uh, far more palpable. Um, you know, it's a very tough situation for everyone, but at least you know we weren't scrambling from that perspective because we've been exercising how we how we respond to crisis for various different types, including pandemics prior to this. So I get asked frequently by our customers of how involved Saudi's leadership team or you know, the SLT is. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I, I when I mention that we do exercises with them, um, I usually get the look of surprise. Can you just talk about how you that culture was built? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. We started first with just, you know, what is, you know, running a set of um, desktop exercises, tabletop exercises. And, you know, Satya and the entire SLT were all on board. We did run them as cyber exercises first, obviously, because as a company that's built on trust, we thought it was important we continue to uh, work on those exercises and make sure that we, we understood how to address those. It was interesting when I tried to push to more um, uh, potentially life-threatening scenarios like, you know, unplanned flax, like an earthquake or something like that. There's a little bit of resistance to, you know, make sure you get the other components uh, really nailed. And um, I still remember we ran a specific type of exercise that allowed us to, to um, simulate life safety issues included in the cyber exercise, and but more importantly, included in a uh, global nature because the diversity of how to think about uh, a global situation is always much different. And, um, and that was that was a good experience for everyone. You know, our, our first rule is life safety first, number one, and then customer uh, is the second thing, and then Microsoft third. And then there's a set of things we think about in terms of principles around, you know, obviously act within legal bounds, make sure you're thinking, you know, globally, um, et cetera, et cetera. But that life safety really becomes critical. And in fact, I think Ann, I was with you when this thing happened. Uh, we were down at RSA and, and then they had declared um, uh, a state of emergency in the city of San Francisco. And some of us were flying back that Thursday and then the, within a day and a half, we had the first case in the U.S., which happened to be in our backyard here in the Northwest. And so that kicked immediately into gear. Sasha and the whole SLT, we had a call that morning, and then we had calls daily for, for a long time. And we still do regular updates with the entire SLT 
uh, in mail, I'll oh, probably three times a week, four times a week, and in, in person as well, uh, once a week. Let's let's shift then to what that means from a reality of actually working from home. We've become mostly accustomed to a new set of you know rules of engagements, but I want to go a little bit deeper and talk a bit about the interpersonal adjustment um, to folks working from home. Things like, you know, people are under stress. Maybe they're educating their children. Maybe they have a sick family member. They're, they're, even their ability to procure groceries may have changed during this period of time, really basic life functions. So yeah. talk about the themes and how the bad actors and the attackers are taking it. Have you seen them take advantage of this? Yeah, it's a, you know, I think it's a super interesting point around, um, even in general, like, I think there's so much focus on this specific instance. And like I said, we, you know, we, we uh, handle up to about 30 different types of crises every year. But I do know that the number we react to has gone up. And I think one of the things that's interesting is to differentiate uh, in this, you know, when we think of bad actors, there's the normal growth of cybersecurity issues, and we've been doubling incident volume year over year for the last five years, and so it's a pretty um, linear progression. And then there's opportunistic uh, bad actor uh, um, campaigns, as you know, you're well aware. Classically, you think of the Olympics is always a time because you have people in a state of global awareness and heightened awareness, and that are tend to be more willing to be socially engineered or more, more um, vulnerable to be socially engineered. So elections, global elections, uh, global events like Olympics, uh, World Economic Forum, things like that, people will use those opportunistically to take advantage of that. And I think COVID is just another one of those examples. It just happens to be um, super far reaching, uh, very, very, uh, very, uh, um, um, may, people are very susceptible to reading things about it. Um, and then you add to that some of the unrest that's going on. And so actors have clearly um, uh, taken advantage of this situation. You'll see a lot in terms of phishing scams. Um, and even though we've seen phishing scams taking advantage of COVID, we haven't seen the frequency go up. We've just seen the campaign tactics shift to that model, bad actor campaigns shifting to that model. And then um, we've also seen a really big increase in ransomware, in particular human-operated ransomware. Um, and a lot of activity against RDP, so the remote desktop protocol, because so many people are remoting into systems using that protocol, when you see broad usage, you'll see broad bad actor uh, um, uh, campaigns against those things. So those are really the three big things I would say we've really seen. As we think about Microsoft, then I I, I tell folks that that we were fortunately really prepared, and not just because we're a technology company, not just because we could deploy anything we want, you know, theoretically quickly, but because you had moved down this path much earlier to a zero trust architecture, and that really enabled when you think about the balance of sending you know ninety seven percent of the workforce home and being productive. Can you talk a little bit about first why we went on that journey as early as we did, and then how it did enable us to actually react to this in, in a really, really agile manner. Yeah, I, it's always, you always wonder if you're um, prescient or lucky when you start certain campaigns. And I think um, this goes back to, you know, do the right thing for the right reason at the right time. And um, we were working on zero trust because we knew uh, that the idea of the network is the most effective control plane just wasn't a modern approach, right? Identity was going to become that modern control plane. And and you're going to have, you know, people working remotely, connecting from mobile devices to cloud services, never never transiting a corporate boundary, uh, for example, via VPN. So that was really what what drove us to 
to you know, over five years ago, start working on implementing our zero trust strategy. Um, and obviously, um, the, when all of a sudden everyone is, you know, it's one thing to say you're going from, you know, your local coffee shop to your mailbox and never transiting a corporate network as a nice thing after hours or on the weekend. But when that becomes the only way is from your home ISP because you're not going into your corporate office, um, it really pushes the boundaries of what what you can do there, as you pointed out, on the on the up to 97% remote workforce. So since we'd already started it, I would say technology. It's funny technologically, I think we were very prepared and very capable for that model. I think culturally, it's a different question that I'm not sure we were quite as ready for. Um, and there's a lot of learnings that we've used in, in a data-driven approach on like how do people work in that environment? How do they stay connected? How do they communicate? How do they collaborate? Um, that technologically we're really well prepared for. The data has really shown us some interesting trends about how people work and how productive they can be. And that should be super clear. Like we're very lucky. I, I, I never want to be confused by the fact that the type of work we do lends itself very well to that kind of work. But you know, first responders, that's not true manufacturing, that's not true. There are entire segments that don't have the benefit of, of being able to do that. Now, most companies are more technologically based than they were, but um, I would just say, I'm grateful for the people that that um, that can't work in that environment, but still are and continue to help us move forward. So um, I do, again, feel super lucky about uh, our situation, but I'm happy to share what we've learned and how um, it can help other people in that scenario. By the way, I completely agree with you. I, we are super lucky and we have to remember that every day. We, you know, just a simple thing that I have a computer that Microsoft issues me that I can work with at home and I can work at home. To your point, I'm not a first responder. I'm not a frontline worker or critical staff anywhere, right? That has to be physically in a building. Um, so yeah, the learnings are, I think, something, you know, and you talked a little bit about the psychology working from. I also know that for different parts of the, um, population you had to do certain things for developers versus you know folks that were more customer facing or you know in our marketing organization can, can you talk a little bit about some of the trade-offs you had to make and decisions you had to make along the way and what you learned the framework is easy because there's so many things you can't plan for so one of the things we thought about which was well let's take our work and think about how we're going to enable the remote workforce at microsoft so we did build a simple framework that we broke into a few areas, if I could, like user identity and access, we had to make sure we understood how we were gonna do that in this scenario. Again, multi-factor authentication, we were already you know, pushing for that as part of Zero Trust, making sure all devices were managed, which we were a large BYOD shop at one point, so ensuring that now in particular, because you have no, uh, no, no, sorry, you have no moral equivalent to badging into a building uh, in, in someone's house, right? And so how do you think about them making sure that all the devices are managed, the productivity applications, how do they work in a distributed fashion? And we can walk through a little bit about what we learned there. And in particular, meetings and collaboration. Like a lot of people, you know, the initial go home thing was, well, we'll just run meetings the way we ran them before, like eight hour, you know, all hands meetings. Well, an all hands meeting where you get up and you have a break and you talk to people and you have a chance to, you know, to 15 minutes to get a tea like we were having now, or, you know, a scone or, you know, whatever, or a healthy uh, uh, beverage or lunch is very different than like eight hour meetings just don't work online like that. And so that was a, you know, amazing thing we learned. And then, you know, what's the story about access to line of business and legacy applications? How do we think about the service monitoring? Because through all of this, we've been uh, super data-driven, and I'll give some examples that are going to be super helpful as we return for work. 
to ensure we have those learnings carry forward from what we learned through this period. Uh, and when I say return to work, I mean return to workplace. And then um, just the culture and change management. As I said, I think we knew ahead of time we were going to have to think about that. Some of it I think we got right, some of it I think we learned about. Like, as an example, managers uh, have taken more of the brunt of the flexibility because of trying to support individuals. And then uh, designing for very specific roles. So as I mentioned, and, and as you said, this you know, up to 97% of the remote workforce, while we're largely able to work remotely, at the same time, you know, we build data centers around the globe that are supporting all our customers at a time when our customers needed more capacity than we ever had. So, you know, you know, more than 10 times growth in teams really does mean somebody has to provision that equipment in the data centers and that can't be done remotely. And so you know, how do we make specific uh, capabilities in terms of both protection application and um, productivity for workers who don't have the option of working remotely? And so those are those are really some of the biggest things we thought that those framework was what drove us through all of our conversations. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad that we, you know, I, again, fortunate and lucky to work for an organization that A, was so prepared, but B, is, as you know, is very data driven. You know, we joke a lot that the company that produces Excel is um, able to measure anything. Yeah, so. no, totally <laughs> true. And I think, I think in that scenario, well, I think some of the outcome of that, like we said, we were, we wanted to be data driven. We wanted to have a framework. But we also learned that we had to adapt some of our data driven, like data driven for service health and data driven for, you know, incident or cyber response. Those are all great things. But data driven in terms of employee pulse, employee productivity, developer productivity, um, we had done some of that work. But this really uh, forced us to take a holistic view of what productivity for our people was and how to and how to maintain Productivity, if you had the skills of justice and you had, you know, productivity on one side and wellness on the other side, you have to balance because um, we found that we had some really huge spikes in, in work behavior, particularly when you were in shelter in place. And so you saw these, you know, really high developer productivity numbers as measured by, you know, pull requests or code check ins and knowing that that's not sustainable. How do how do we, you know, again, culturally change the management scenario to say, hey, You've got to tell people to take time away. You need to tell people to take vacation um, because you know you could burn people out, and we didn't want to do that. So again, that sort of mental wellness and, and well-being relative to productivity um, has been super uh, super interesting. So Brett, I know we're we're very data driven, and during this period of time, we've been looking at um, user productivity and user productivity our employees working from home. How has that been tracking? Yeah, it's, you know, it's been fascinating, actually, uh, look at the data every day, and we sort of think about it in terms of, you know, developer productivity, info worker develop uh, productivity, like meetings, et cetera, administrative, uh, administrator productivity, and like developer productivity, interestingly, has been running at about 129% of what the baseline was before COVID had happened. Yeah, no, that, and that makes sense. And that takes me to, you know, the last topic for today, which is I've been talking a lot about the topic of digital empathy. Um, I spoke at the RSA conference in Singapore about it, and I'm continuing to talk about it because including me, right? I've been in cybersecurity, you know, a long time also. And we, we've always kind of put blame the user a bit, right? Historically, we blame <laughs> the user. They were casual. They were careless. They didn't know what they were doing. 
And it's time we really disrupt that perception because at the end of the day, users make errors, and especially right now with people so stressed about everything else going on in their life, whether it's a pandemic or the racial justice issues we're facing, or in the U.S. we've gone through a bad summer of you know hurricanes and wildfires, people are unbelievably stressed. So digital yep. empathy to me is a lot about building the tools that are forgivable, putting the processes in place that actually takes the burden off the end user. And if they make a mistake, it doesn't impact, you know, it doesn't turn into a breach of the entire organization. Can you just talk a little bit about how we're implementing tools that give employees that latitude, respect, but yet you're still protecting Microsoft, which is, you know, the core goal? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss if I said we have figured it all out, but I certainly know that, um, you know, this idea of, balancing the user experience and balancing you know the needs of users like you were just mentioning in in a whole bunch of different scenarios um relative to the tooling we build is is a combination of uh, this as you point out digital empathy which is give me the tools and feedback system so i can understand if they're working or not working and so you know a, a good example when we built that was when we first built our you know 2fa systems our multi-factor authentication systems was getting feedback on are people comfortable with, you know, using facial recognition or fingerprint or others? And then, you know, we built a great model where you had a great user experience, but you also had really good security. And I think we learned um, through this remote remote experience. Similarly, we we again provided telemetry to let us understand um, how were people working or working within the system. One of the biggest issues or complaints we were hearing, like when we look at our help desk ticket volume, was uh, connectivity problems. And again, we don't control all the ISPs to your house, but we could work with them to get a pretty good view. You know, were we seeing issues in this state in India or this part of Asia, uh, you know, like China or, or um, uh, same thing with Dublin. And so in some cases we added capacity. In some cases, you know, we just let people know there's an outage. And, and again, just listening to and making sure I understand what their productivity was, um, I think was super helpful in building these listening systems. And so. Literally every day I look at what the productivity is for the information worker, what the productivity is for administrators and what the productivity is for developers. And I look at help desk volumes and I look at sentiment related to that. And I think in a time of crisis, people are always willing to lean in. Sustained crisis becomes different. And I think the thing I'm probably, uh, probably two of my biggest learnings in all of this, and I, and I know you've, you've, you've done this for a long time. There are a lot of people who work remotely uh, for some period of time, it was quite natural. Our field is much more of a remote workforce than our developer community in general. When everyone's in a room in a meeting and there's one person on the call, there's always an inequality about that, right? So it's, it's not always, but it's harder to have the same footing and presence when you're remote. The thing I never experienced or expected experience was a scenario where everybody was remote. So it becomes the ultimate equalizer. And it's been actually a super great experience because, you know, Technologically, you can't talk over each other. It's it's actually really a very uh, good experience, and I think it's super inclusive. The question for us as we return to workplace is, now you go to a model where in a more flexible environment, you have half the people in the room, perhaps, or two rooms that have half the people you know, in different geographic locations, and then the other half are all independently dialed in. And how do you make sure you don't lose that great uh, inclusiveness we've created through this 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 whole learning, and this is a good example where again with technology we get feedback. We've built it into uh, into teams where we actually ask people. We always ask how's call how's call quality, 
And so we can see if we have network issues or, or product issues and, and we get those feed, that feedback real time. Now we are asking that same set of questions, how inclusive was this meeting? And we can do a pre-pandemic, in-pandemic, post-pandemic comparisons against baselines to see if we're seeing a trend as people come back, if they start to exclude people, not consciously, hopefully, but we'll be able to start judging if we're seeing that happen. And those kinds of toolings are what, in my mind, really make up digital empathy, right? The ability to get that data, what would have made the meeting more effective is another thing. And just simple things like that really, really help drive not just our technology, but the way we implement it. So last question, um, we've seen some data, you know, some early data that actually showed us that people were more productive at home. Um, now, maybe it's because um, for a period of time, things were shut down and they, you know, work was was a bit of an outlet, I suppose. But as we think about then having, you know, this hybrid office, right? Some folks going back to work um, at some point full time, other folks maybe working from home still full time. How do we think about the tooling? You talk a lot about the data, not only to make sure we're still inclusive, but to make sure we're, we're still maintaining a high level of productivity, especially in that hybrid environment. The numbers have been really good. I think there's some transitions that, you know, again, we need to think about because we see, um, we, we saw uh, certain dips that would happen, um, like when you start doing less shelter in place, you know, it's one thing to be productive because you can't go out because you can't, for example, go out to dinner or go for walks. It's another thing when you start reintroducing those back in. Um, how do you and then and then how do you maintain that? The point I guess that's probably more interesting for me in maintaining that is is, is how um, the quality of productivity and the ingenuity part. I think is the thing we're going to have to still think about because there's some things that don't bode well. Um, in a transactional model of productivity, like just creativity of brainstorming and ideas bouncing off each other or that serendipitous learning, you know, uh, the American example is the chocolate and peanut butter Reese's cup, right? And so there's serendipitous things that happen all the time. And so I think there's going to be a balance between those. I think in general, though, we'll definitely see people far more um, now trained and culturally aware of how to operate in a hybrid model where many more people have more flexible work schedules. So I think you'll see a sustained view of how that works. And I think the tooling will help us greatly with understanding how do people feel personally about being productive? Um, how do people feel about, you know, there's sort of this idea of personal productivity, group productivity, company productivity, and country productivity, right? And that's one of the things about, you know, how whether companies reopen their environments is because of, you know, uh, GDP. And so um, I think of productivity as sort of those four layers. And... Um, certainly, we're going to push the boundaries of what personal productivity means um, as as part of the return to workplace scenario. The only thing I can say is um, the data will help us guide us through those kinds of conversations in ways we never had before. But also just the flexibility of the client to cloud world is another thing. Like I said, for me to stand up things like WVD were, would have taken like six months and now it's just on demand. It's cloud capability that's there. The remote workforce, same thing. It's just so fast with mobile or PC or laptop. And so I think we have an ability to be much more reaction, uh, reactionary to our needs of our employees, uh, both in terms of work lifestyle and in terms of even geographic models. I think that'll be super interesting. I don't know how we work out all the time issues yet, um, but I think that'll be something we're going to have to continue to support. 
Yeah, it it is an interesting problem to solve. And I think as we continue to get the data, right, it's early. It's early in the data cycle. So we'll and we'll see how many people, you know, want to go back when the time is right to working, you know, full time in the office versus part time versus not at all. Yeah. Before we wrap, um, we always like to leave people with two to three pieces of pragmatic advice, kind of the what do you do today? So. What is uh, the Brett Arsenault view of what do you do today if you're a cybersecurity professional? It's funny, um, you know, we've talked before on this, and this goes back to a really good strategy. Really doesn't get uh, doesn't get altered by um, uh, opportunistic issues like 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 some of the things that we've seen happen. And so, um, I don't think the plan changes in my mind. That you you continue on a digital transformation path because most companies are going digital. Um, you'll find your workforce is it's far more productive the more digital it can be and how you enable that. And the best way to enable a remote workforce to be productive is to really, really um, push them to get to multi-factor authentication for everything they do, ensure that their devices are all managed so that you still have the same visibility you used to look to the network for. And then sadly, <clears throat> the, excuse me, the pedestrian part of the job um, is still keep systems current, keep them patched. If you do those three things, uh, I think that you're in great shape. The only fourth element I would add, though, is I do think building your own digital empathy system using the telemetry from your your providers, your cloud providers, your on-prem solutions, and really understanding what questions you want to ask about what is personal uh, and group and company-wide productivity mean for you, and what does wellness mean for you, and then you won't get it right, but at least if you start looking at it and you ask the questions and driving the data that does it, that gets you to those points, you really uh, you'll find uh, I think a fascinating set of um, new areas that you may not have noticed before, even things you would have wished you'd asked before any of this had happened. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me today, Brett. It's really been I think um, very informative for our audience and for our guests and. Um, they can will resonate with a lot of folks who listen to the show. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. And as always, you know, we, we learn a ton from all the interactions with uh, you and the team and then all of our customers. I'd love to tell you, this is all stuff we thought up on our own in a lab, but it was from the conversations like this that really helped drive us to that, that set of conclusions. I invited Brett to be a guest on the podcast because he runs this incredibly complex, you know, security program, incident response program, um, program for business continuity at Microsoft Disaster Recovery. And I really felt this year, more than even other years in the past, his perspective and his ability to give the audience something really tangible for their own programs would be really relevant. I think my top takeaway from this episode was truly the pragmatic advice that Brett was able to land um, and how Microsoft went through the process, how we use data, how we're thinking about the future, right? And how we know we're in a fortunate situation with technology enablement and really gave us an advantage and a fast start out of the gate for enabling our um, employees to be productive yet secure when they were at home. Thanks so much to our audience for listening and join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.